The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. First Baptist Church of Crosby, hear the word of the Lord. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from them, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Let's ask God's help. Father, we um, have come to do business with you. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe and to cherish what you say here. Father, we ask you to do it by your spirit now. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Go ahead and return to your feet, please. We continue working verse by verse, or rather word by word, through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 4. I'll read this morning. We will read this morning these, um, these first um, three verses. This is the holy, inspired, and Aaron. Sufficient, authoritative word of God. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. All God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. So as I have said to you during our last four or five gatherings now, what, what we're looking at here is a, a picture of the worthy walk, uh, a bit of a, a sketch of the true Christian life. And we find here, just in these three verses that I've read, really three markers that we ought to look for in ourselves. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and an eagerness for unity. You recall that we spent our time together on the last Lord's Day morning looking at this, this biblical definition or essence or root of true Christian humility. 
we then gathered together at five o'clock for our evening service and we came back to these same words and we consider there the fruit or the outworking of the humble heart. What does it mean to actually walk humbly with our God? And so in a very real sense, much of what we did last week was a setting the stage. We, we were laying out the table, as it were, to pretty much everything that's going to come throughout the remainder of this letter. And so I take some time to come back this morning and continue just adding a little bit more to that foundation because what I sincerely believe and what I've found in my own studies is that there, there are some fundamental things that are not only true of Christian humility, but that prove themselves to be true with every single Christian virtue to which the scripture calls us. One of those is that true holiness can never be found other than in rightly seeing and delighting in the glory of God seen in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. What I mean by that is we must take great care never to try and separate the commandments of God from the gospel of Jesus Christ. The law is not sufficient, nor was it given to us in order to accomplish what we really and truly need. It accomplishes the end for which it was given, to lead men to Christ and to show them what a holy life was meant to look like. But there's something much more that is needed. And so we've got to take great care that we don't ever allow these, we don't allow these months that lie ahead as we look together at these imperatives, that we don't allow our time together to turn into motivational speeches. Or as if I'm just giving you some new Christian moral code or, or sense of ethics. What we truly need is what has been accomplished by Jesus Christ and what is being applied by his Holy Spirit here and now. We've got to come to this every single week with the remembrance that only God can set a man free to even desire to do the things to which he has called us, much less set us free in order to walk in them. What did Paul say? We are his workmanship. It's his power at work within us that enables us to will and to do what he's called us to. So that's the first thing that we, we can't lose sight of. We've got to continually keep our hearts and our minds tethered to that. But number two, much of what I found written with regards to last week's subject, with regards to Christian humility in my commentaries as I considered what other pastors and theologians had said, much of what I found made it very clear that in the ancient Near East, humility was not viewed as an admirable trait. That, that meekness and lowliness, that putting others before yourself, refusing to defend your own honor or to use all of the power and privilege that's at your disposal for your own advantage, that these things were truly seen as dishonorable traits in the ancient Near East. But I would argue to you that while the word humanity, humility, excuse me, while the word humility may have a po positive connotation in the culture that we now live in, true biblical Christ exalting humility, the reality to which that word actually points, it is a thing that is utterly rejected and despised by the unbelieving world. 
This is not just a case with humility. It's the case with Christ exalting gentleness. It's the case with heaven minded patience. It's the case anytime a man actually seeks to reflect the glory of God in Christ. And, and even if the world can't express why they don't like us, even if they can't really put their finger on why they find us so off putting, we know the answer. It's because the darkness hates the light. And this proves to be even and especially true with people that are in the darkness but think that they're children of the light. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we find that the more that we actually exhibit true Christian humility and gentleness and patience, that we find the world pushing back and calling us all the more proud and harsh and insufferable. Because those who only have the external shell, like a caricature of humility, a caricature of gentleness, a cartoon picture of patience, they're going to detest the real thing. The life of the Christian, the life of following Christ, it is not a way to win friends and to influence people. It's, it's quite the opposite. And so we, we've got to remember that Paul's words towards the end of his life to the young pastor, Timothy, they didn't just speak into that first century context. They had a whole lot to say to us today. He was speaking about what life would be like in the last days, the days in which we live here and now. And he says in 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, from deceiving and being deceived. The Lord Jesus, on the night which he was betrayed, John 16, 2, he says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that they are offering service to God. Again, I say those with false humility and the mere appearance of godliness, they will despise those who have true Christ likeness marking their lives. But the question we've got to ask ourselves is, how do we know that we're not the deceived deceivers? How do we know that we're not the imposters? How do we know that we're not the hypocrites play acting with a mask of gentleness and the mask of humility and the mask of patience, but none of the substance? Well, it's a good question, especially in light of the fact that we've been swimming in these worldly waters for all of our life. Especially when we consider the weakness of our own flesh or we consider the wiles of the devil. That's three W's. Pinocchio said, I'm a real boy. I'm a real preacher. It's the only world we've ever known, the weakness of our flesh and the work of the devil and the temperature of the waters that, that, that we swim in. And so, yeah, we need to take time. And, and what do we do then? Do we stare at ourselves in the mirror long enough and look for warts and scars and falsehood? I don't, I don't think so. The answer comes back to the thing that I've been saying to you over and over and over again. We come to the scriptures and we ask ourselves, what does God actually mean by what he's actually said? This really is the first and most fundamental struggle in all of Bible study. I mean, you, you realize that 
For the first 1,800 or so years of the church, most people couldn't read. And so now we, we live in this time when most of us can read. And you realize that for the first 1,500 or so years of the church, most people, even if they could read, wouldn't have been able to read the scriptures. They didn't have copies in their own language. And so we live in a time when literacy is abounding and we live in a time where we're surrounded with just an embarrassment of riches when it comes to good, solid English translations of the Bible. But we've got to re realize that language and vocabulary, they don't exist in a vacuum. This is in part why there are and there will always continue to be new translations produced. To be clear, the, the words spoken by God through his chosen apostles and prophets, they have a fixed historical grammatical meaning. As Martin Luther said, they're not like a wax nose that can be bent to fix, shaped to fix whatever it is that suits our fancy. God has revealed to us as eternal and unchanging and objective truth. Heaven and earth will pass away, but these words will never pass away. However, he's chosen to reveal to us this absolute truth using human language. And because language and the way that men use words, it's, it's constantly changing. We must constantly be at work trying to, uh, trying to detect and trying to fix any drift that we find happening in our use of the words and in our thoughts and understandings about God. This is why I mentioned to you last week, at least in part why I mentioned to you last week, that the, the culture war, the, the battle of war, worldviews that we find, not just in our own time, but going all the way back to the, to the beginning. This is why it really is very quickly becoming a, a battle for the dictionary. Who gets to define what words mean? Who is Lord over vocabulary and over language? You see? Like you can't just go into a room and throw out the word love and expect that everybody in that room is gonna understand those four letters to point to the same reality. It's not true in the world and it's not even true amongst all those who claim the name of Christ. You'll find people that use the exact same orthodox, conservative, biblical language as we do. But ultimately, if you really pay attention to what they're saying, their thoughts and their ideas and the things that they're preaching couldn't be any further away from true biblical Christianity. I read to you articles of faith from a well-known church. We believe in God, the eternal Father, and in his Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. I don't see any problems there. We believe Jesus is the Son of God, the only begotten Son in the flesh. They point our hearts. They make reference to John 3.16. We believe Jesus suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he submitted to a cruel death on the cross of Calvary, all as a willing sacrifice, a substitutionary atonement for our sins. Sounds like the kind of church I ought to be attending. Only problem, they're Mormons. They don't believe in the same Christ. But that's all our language, isn't it? And so that's an extreme example. We could do it with the Jehovah's Witnesses. We could do it with all the, all the false churches. And I submit to you that 
It's not just those who are fully cults, who preach a full-throated false gospel. It's many who claim the name of the evangelical church. And I'm telling you, this is one of the greatest burdens on my heart at this moment as your pastor. That we are surrounded by churches that use 90% of the same language that we do. They read and they preach from the same Bibles that you find in the pews sitting right in front of you. They would, many of them, be willing to sign off on the exact same statements of faith that you and I might hold to. But they never actually take the time to explain what those words really point to. And therefore, they leave their people completely susceptible to a world under the power of the evil one. Devil, the devil does not come marching down Main Street and say, hey, let's barbecue babies. Although, sadly, there's many in our culture today who might rejoice in that. He takes the word of God and he twists it. Easy for you to say. Has God really said clothed in light. It looks beautiful and enticing. As I talk with the children and tell us about the picture of the garden, I got to read. Um, well, finally, I, I read every, every day, Monday through Thursday at 1.15, I go and read to our littlest, or our second littlest group from the Chronicles of Narnia. This week we were reading about Edmund and the Turkish delight. And I looked to those children and I said, what do you notice here? What do you think this is a picture of? Eve in the garden? Yes. Who do you think that white witch represents? The serpent? Yes. Did she present him with a box with a skull and crossbones on the front of it? No. It was delightful. It tasted good on the tongue. It left him wanting more. This is the trick of the enemy. So there's many who leave their people just susceptible to the works of the devil. But worse than this, there are many, I don't know how many who, but there are many who have merely commandeered biblical language. They have ripped scripture out of its context. They have forced their own worldly meanings and interpretations upon all of it. And as a result of that, they're leading many souls down the broad and easy road to destruction. Because of the tone and the emotion and the excitement of it all renders the people incapable of having the discernment to ask, what are these people actually saying? Or maybe more telling than that, what are these people never saying? And, and, and I know that some of you are maybe tired of hearing me say this. And I know that some of you might be sitting there this morning thinking that I'm being melodramatic. But consider this. Political conservatives, of which I am one, but political conservatives rightly lose their minds when we find ourselves surrounded by fools who cannot tell you what a woman is. Or they'll give you a definition that nobody in the last 6,000 years would have had any chance of understanding. While at the same time, many of these same people, they take offense and they call us quarrelsome because we demand that they take the same care with the name of Christ and the words that he's given us. 
I'm talking about men who pride themselves in owning the libs by asking, what's a woman? But then they cry like little girls and run away when we ask, what's a follower of Christ? Does not the name of Jesus Christ and does not the words of life that he has given us, don't they require at least as much care? Is these silly political fights that we get into online, these, these gotchas that we throw out before each other? And so that's why we move at the pace that we move at. Martin Luther, excuse me, John Calvin, speaking about this same thing in his institutes. He said it is better to limp along this path than to dash with all speed outside of it. I've had people that have wondered before if our pace is driven by pride. It's driven by haughtiness and, a, and an excessive high-minded kind of thought. I, I, and, I, and I try to assure them, no, it's not. It's driven by godly fear and, and a godly concern, terrified for those who are running really, really, really fast in the wrong direction. Because they couldn't be bothered to slow down before they took off to get their bearings about them. And because they find it annoying when... Somebody from the side hollers out at them, you're going the wrong way. Just slow down and look at the signs. Could you slow down and get out the map and consider where you're actually being led? And so that's the purpose for our pace. And that's the purpose for us considering and, and feasting upon and Every single one of these words, we don't want to be the deceived deceivers. We don't want to be the imposters. We don't want to be the play actors. We don't want to get to the end of this thing and find out, find out that we've been following a Christ, but the wrong Christ. That we've entrusted ourselves to a gospel, but it's a gospel that never saved. So we come back to the text with all that front end loaded. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. If you can't tell, I don't, I don't know if my tone is any different this morning, but I feel a different tone within me because this is one of those sermons that strikes my own heart long before it ever reaches you. Gentleness. This word, the specific word that's used here is only found 16 times in the New Testament. We find it used of Christ. Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Christ Jesus is revealing part of the reason that we can come to him with confidence, part of the reason why we can be assured that when we reach him, we will find rest for our souls is bound up in this. One of very few places in scripture where Christ speaks directly to his own heart, and he calls himself here meek and humble and gentle and lowly. You remember this similar words were used of him as he made his triumphal entry. They said that he was he was meek and gentle and and mounted on a donkey. Paul refers to Christ like this in second Corinthians. He says, I, Paul, I myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. There is a there is a tenderness and there is a gentleness and there is a meekness and there is a compassion that marked the whole of Jesus life. You see it running all throughout his life, even up to his moments upon the cross as he is there and he looks with great compassion 
to the thief on one side of him as he prays to the father and asks him to forgive those who are crucifying him as he looks to John, his apostle and his mother, and he, he has great concern and, and tenderness and care for this one who has raised him. And so we shouldn't be surprised then whenever we consider what the life of one who has been filled with the spirit of Christ is meant to look like. We, we shouldn't be surprised when we come to Galatians and we find this listed as one of the fruit of the spirit. It's a thing that only the spirit of Christ can work in and through us. True Christian gentleness. That's why it, it's not a it's not merely a personality trait. It's not it's not just a thing that some people are born with and some people are absent of. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit that only he can present. That's why I brought you back to that first fundamental statement. It only comes as we see and cherish and delight in the glory of God in Christ. But at the same time, it is a thing that we're called to work towards. It is a thing that we are commanded to strive for. Colossians 3.12 says, To put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 1 Timothy 6.11 says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. He's talking about evil things that have come before. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So, as I did last week, I did again this week. I went just to the, to the Bible dictionary, to a lexicon, and I asked, what, what is this word? What is the word gentleness defined as? And what I found there was it's the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance. And if this definition is accurate, which I, I trust that it is, then you can see why we find together humility and gentleness packed into the same prepositional statement, beginning with the word with, with all humility and gentleness. Gentleness and humility and courtesy and considerateness and meekness. These all point to the same general reality. But I think that there are some fundamental distinctions between the two. It doesn't seem to me that what Paul is doing here is taking humility and gentleness and presenting them to us as mere synonyms. So you'll recall, going back to last week, that when I sought to, when I sought to present you with a true biblical definition for humility, and some of you sent me your homework, by the way. I, was, I didn't think anybody would take me serious, but, but some of you sent me emails with your own attempt at putting together a biblical definition of humility. I challenge you to do the same this week with gentleness. It blessed my heart. It was an encouragement that you were listening. It was an encouragement that you carried the thoughts from this room out with you as you went and that you checked me. Make sure that I hadn't jumped the shark somewhere along the way. But you remember when we considered humility last week, I came to the conclusion that it's a disposition of the heart that is rightly seen and known the love of God. That, that delights in him too much to allow anything, including the applause of men, to get between us and him. So humility, as best I could understand it, based on our studies last week, it's a disposition of the heart, or it's, a, it's an inward posture. It'll be evidenced by outward fruit. That's what we came back and studied in the evening. It's going to produce fruit. There's going to be evidence and things that you can see from the humble heart, but that ultimately, it's an inward thing. It's an inward posture. It's a disposition of the heart. Now, when we come to gentleness, it's obvious that if gentleness is going to be real, it has to originate in the heart. 
It can't just be a bunch of external things that you do. Otherwise, it's not real. But as we look to the way that the word is used in scripture, it does seem to point us to something more outward and observable and, and visible and the behaviors that play themselves out in the relational aspect to life. You remember that what the Apostle Paul is writing about is the way in which we as a church are to walk worthily in the context of the church. How are we to walk worthily in a way that relates to one another? And so we see this in the way that the word is used in 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2, 24. Paul says that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So gentleness here seems to be contrasted with being quarrelsome. So, so rather than an inward disposition, it's, it's an outward demeanor. We, we see the same kind of usage found in... Um, and the qualifications that Paul gives us for elders. Therefore, an overseer, this is 1 Timothy 3. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. We'll see the same thing elsewhere. That he's not to be domineering and he's not to be quick-tempered. And that's, I think, in part why you feel this tone or why I feel this different weight this morning is the realization that a pastor can be disqualified not just because he runs off on his wife not because he's a drunkard not because he's out in the road out in the road boxing with people not because he's a thief not because he's a philanderer not because he doesn't know the scriptures but because he's not gentle because he's quarrelsome that's how serious God takes this. A man disqualifies himself from the position of elder or shepherd or pastor when he fails to be gentle. Titus 3, 1 through 2 talks to the people. He says that we must remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling and to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. You see, a man can be humble alone in his room with God. But it seems to me that in order to be gentle, I've got to be around somebody towards which to be gentle. And that's what makes it so hard. As you interact with other sinners and we, we bump into each other and you're not what I hoped you would be and I'm not what you hoped that I would be. There's great room for, they continue to come back to this quarrelsome. I'm being... I'm seeing a brawler here. Somebody's just ready to go with the drop of a hat. Somebody's always looking for opportunity to take up an offense and to let you know about it. This isn't just a physical violence. This isn't just a physical gentleness. This is a gentleness that goes much deeper with this. This is a gentleness with your heart. Concern for how my words might affect you in, in the way that you receive them. And so the way that my mind has made sense of this, I guess, is that humility is the way that we view everything in the world, including ourselves, especially ourselves, in comparison to and in light of the glory of God in Christ. And gentleness is the way that that view causes us to relate to other people. You can't separate the two. 
And so you find that there's this tenderness and this intentional compassion and this, this handling of other people's heart with particular care that comes from my desperate desire to glorify God and to see you glorify God, to see you delight in him. You, you think about what, what your child hears, those of you that have, have welcomed new babies into your home while you still had toddlers. So you've got a two-year-old, you've got a three-year-old, and you bring home a brand new baby and you look to that three-year-old big brother or sister as they get to hold their baby sibling for the first time. And you look to them and you say, gentle, gentle. What signal are you sending to them? Of course, first you're saying, don't bounce them around, don't drop them on the floor. But you are sending a very clear signal to this child that now holds his baby brother. The thing you hold in your hand is precious. There are plenty of things in the house that are breakable. But you be more gentle with this than all the rest because this thing is precious. This thing matters. Do you see the picture? Now, I think because of the nature of gentleness, because it is external, because it is outward, because it is a way that we're bumping into and relating to each other, I do think that it's somewhat easier to define gentleness than humility. But I think the thing that we have to fight against is the reality that there's no shortages of, of caricatures out there for what gentleness is meant to look like. For many, they take gentleness, and while they may not use these terms, this really is the picture that they paint. It's something of someone who is weak and effeminate and fearful and willing to do whatever is necessary to avoid conflict at all costs. And the way that we see this playing out is by presenting to the world and to, to Christians and churches like this one a picture of gentleness that is only gentle to the degree at which the people around them aren't offended or aren't hurt or aren't upset. That gentleness is only determined by the way the people around you respond to your gentleness. But you've got to see that true gentleness, it is far from weakness. In fact, I submit to you as I had, this, I had this thought, and as I went to the commentaries, I found this repeating itself over and over and over again. And so I believe it to be fundamentally true that gentleness presupposes power. Gentleness presupposes strength. I want you to think about it. You don't consider me gentle because I don't try to go body slam a hippo. But when I find a cricket in my back study, and I pick it up, and I open the door, and I let it go, that's gentleness. So in order for a man to be truly gentle, whether we're talking about in word or in deed, he has to first have the ability to wound. He has to have the ability to be less than gentle. And this is the beauty of it. Because the stronger a man is, the more powerful a man is, the more authority a man wields, the more damage he could do, but the more beautiful his gentleness. And, of course, we see this nowhere more clearly than in our, in our Lord. I refer you again to the Garden of Gethsemane. We went there last, I think, last Sunday night. But you got Peter there, and he's hacking away with his sword, and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant named Malchus. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I can appeal, cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once... Send me more than 12 legions of angels. Jesus not only had 
the, the power to crush the brigade that had just come to arrest him with a word. He could destroy the earth by fire. He didn't, that's the funny thing about him saying this. He didn't need the angels. And so we see it. This is what makes Christ's gentleness so amazing. That not only did he stay the hand of his friends to not swing the sword, not only did he not call down legions of angels to destroy his enemies, not only did he not just cease doing his work so that they just disintegrated into the ether, he reached down and put the dude's ear back on his head. You know the man flinched as his hand came near. He expected to be struck across the face. But instead a gentle hand of healing came and fixed what another fool had hacked off. So this is why we should be so blown away at the gentleness and the meekness of the Lord Jesus. That's why I read for you now for the third time these words that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. He through whom and by whom all things exist. The one who breathed the stars and calls them by name. The one at whose name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The one who comes with eyes flaming like fire, whose feet will tread down his enemies like grapes. The voice that makes the mountains tremble and men fall down like dead. That same Christ, he looks at weary sinners. He looks at those who are once called his enemy and he says, come near. You'll find me gentle. You will find me lowly. When you come to the realization that that same hand that should crush you picks you up and he holds you. That he heals your wounds and he carries you to the end. Like a giant of a man picking up a wounded baby bird. He holds it tight enough that it can't get away. No one will snatch you from my hand. But very much aware of the fact that if I squeeze too tight, you'll die. That's the gentle, powerful hand of your Lord. And he says of a skinny little reed, hardly worth much when it's brand new but now bruised and bent over or a candle that's burned down to the nub and it hardly gives off any light, no heat at all. It's just, it's just smoke and soot. Do you feel this way? Frail and weak and bent and bruised and used up. Primarily from our own sin. Hardly from anybody else's work for my own sin and my own weakness. And yet as easy as it would be, and as capable and as entitled as he is, he says, I won't break you off and I won't snuff you out. He's not weak. As a matter of fact, it's his power that makes the tenderness possible to us. In that same passage that I read to you from Isaiah 42, he doesn't just talk about his willingness not to break the bruised reed and not to snuff out the smoldering wick. He goes on to say, he, this is, our Savior, the servant, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. That he himself has tasted humiliation and weakness, <clears throat> only to be raised in infinite glory. 
That Christ's gentleness towards us required the most powerful thing in all the universe. So it's precisely because Jesus is strong that he can be gentle. And it's precisely because his strength knows no end that his gentleness should blow us away. So gentleness, as best I can understand it, it's strength under the control of the Holy Spirit. It's strength utilized only for the glory of God and only for the good of his people. It's strength that is exercised in proper proportions. There's a different strength, you realize. When I'm being gentle moving a couch, there's a different strength necessary for that than the gentleness that's needed to pick up a child. There's a different care and gentleness that's needed to open a pickle jar than there is to blow open a dam. So it's strength under the control and the guidance and the disposal of the Holy Spirit for the purposes of the kingdom. Gentleness is not weak. It presupposes strength. Nor is it fearful. Nor does it have an absolute aversion to all conflict. Again, the epitome of gentleness, the epitome of meekness is Christ Jesus. And yet we see him, a man perfectly capable of picking a fight when necessary. He, he came to pick a fight, but how did he fight? How did he fight? But by speaking the truth and laying down his life. By loving his enemies and blessing those who persecuted him. By praying for those who cursed him. But he came for what purpose? To stomp on the head of the serpent. Why did the Holy Spirit lead him out into the wilderness to pick a fight with the enemy? What happened the whole week? The Holy Week and following the triumphal entry in that whole week there in Jerusalem, he was picking a fight against the enemy and against his offspring. And the more I thought about it, maybe picking a fight isn't fair because they started it. But I remind you the way that the demons squalled whenever Christ Jesus showed up. Have you come to torment us before the time? Or what was, the, what was the heart of the Jewish leadership during that Passover week? They didn't want to do it that week. They wanted to take his life any time other than that week. And so maybe picking a fight isn't fair. Maybe we just say he pressed the issue. He forced their hand. He, do the exact, he did the exact things that he knew they were going to back them into a corner. By publicly calling the Pharisees hypocrites and vipers. Calling people who had once believed him sons of the devil. But at the same time, I think what's marvelous is that we see Jesus' most tender compassion on display at some of those very same moments. I want you to think about when he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath and you had the man there with a withered hand. And you see Jesus' love and, and compassion and concern for this weary sinner, this broken man. And at the same time, he was enraged at those around him that would just as soon see this man die than break one of their own ordinances. Or you think about it in Matthew 11, just before he gives us that precious invitation to come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest for your souls. Just before that, he's pronouncing woes and curses on Chorazin and Bethsaida. You think about Jesus weeping over Jerusalem 
right before he goes and makes a whip and cleanses the temple, flipping over tables. We see it with regard to his interactions with his own people as well. Think about him looking to Peter and saying, get behind me, Satan. And how that sets the stage for a beautiful breakfast on the beach. And so our immediate response, and this is not a bad response, the immediate response probably is, well, but he's Jesus and I'm not. He's sinless and I'm not. So maybe it's better for me to just hold my tongue. Always keep my sword in its sheath and never risk being ungentle. And it's, and it's absolutely true. And, and the argument that I'll hear from people is, well, yeah, but you know, we're called to be Christians. We're called to mirror Christ. And you know what? You're not going to be perfect in caring for the poor either. You're not going to be perfect in your service to the saints either. And you, you're not set free from trying there. So I can't be set free from engaging in conflict where necessary. And I get the truth behind that as far as it goes but here's the thing when you mess up in caring for the poor you don't burn your whole house down when you fall short in engaging in conflict or expressing anger you might destroy your family so before I go to even talk about proper conflict the ways in which a gentle man not only can but must engage in conflict just listen to this Proverbs 14, 17, a man of quick temper acts foolishly and a man of evil devises hatred. Psalm 14, 29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Psalm 15, 1, a soft anger turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Psalm 15, 18, Proverbs, these are all Proverbs. I've been saying Psalm this whole time. Those are all Proverbs. Y'all knew they were Proverbs. They sounded like Proverbs. Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 16, 32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs 19, 11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 22, 24, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with his wrathfulness lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Proverbs 29, 11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Ecclesiastes 7, 9, be not quick in your spirit to become anger, angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. I could go on and on and on and on. You've got to temper any understanding you have of proper godly anger or of Christ-like engagement and conflict through all of that, knowing absolutely you are not Christ. And what is at stake when you mess up and are less than like Christ when you engage in these things? The consequences are massive. The more I thought about it this week, I came to view anger or conflict like a loaded gun. There are gonna be situations in your life when you are perfectly within your rights to pull out that gun and use it. But you'd better, better make dang sure you're willing to live with the consequences. And more than this, one of the things they teach you about using weapons, you better know what's on the backside of your target. You start blasting at the bad guy with a shotgun and your kids are sleeping on the other side of that sheetrock, you might have some problems. 
this is why James says, know this, my beloved brother, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Unlike Christ, we're not fulfilling the righteousness of God here. Unlike Christ, he's stomped the head of the serpent. We're not. But you do notice that James doesn't prohibit anger. He merely tells us to keep the proper governor on it. Be slow. Keep it in the proper proportion. And trust yourself to the Holy Spirit to lead. We're going to come in the same chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians 4.26. He's going to say, be angry and do not sin. There's apparently a kind of anger that does not in and of itself equal sin. Now, again, we've got to remember the context that we're reading all this in. This is in the context of the local church. How, how do we engage with one another? And that's going to inform the pictures that we see here. I want you to think about the way that scripture refers to Moses. Numbers 12, 3 says that the man Moses was very meek. That's, that's gentle. The man Moses was very gentle, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Now go to the golden calf incident. And what do you see there? God says the people are down there and they're already breaking these commandments. They've made for themselves a calf and they're bowing down and they're worshiping him. And, and I'm going to destroy him. And I'm going to start over. And what do we see the in the heart of Moses. He intercedes on behalf of the people. He says, God, please don't let your anger burn against them like this. Turn away from the disaster that you promised. And, and he pleads based on what? The glory of God. What will they say about you that you've led them out of Egypt just to bring them out here and destroy them? And so we see his tenderness and we see his compassion and we see his love for the glory of God and for the people of God. And as soon as Moses came near the camp, and he saw the calf in the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand, and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made, and he burned it with fire, and he ground it to powder, and he scattered it in the water, and he made the people of Israel drink it. What was he angry about? You people have dishonored God. And do you not know how close you were to destruction, you fools? When your kid has run away from you in the shopping mall and you finally found them, what fills your heart after you've worn out their fannies? Equal parts anger and love. Now we see Moses' anger getting the better of him. Why didn't he get to go in the promised land? Because he gets angry with these same people and he strikes the rock. So he's not the perfect picture. But I think we see something of what can drive a, a non-sinful kind of anger. That's just one example in Scripture. I don't have time for it, but I was thinking about Nehemiah. You remember how the book of Nehemiah ended? The book of Nehemiah begins with, he gets word about the state of Jerusalem. The wall is torn down and the people are exposed and he weeps and he mourns and he fasts and he prays for the people and he gives up his own comforts. At great personal cost and risk to himself, he goes to the king and then he comes to Jerusalem to serve them. And he does this work and he defends them and he leads them and everything is rebuilt and the law is read and the temple is there and the people go back to the same old trash. Dishonoring the Sabbath, desecrating the temple, and marrying foreign wives. 
So Nehemiah 13, 25, we find Nehemiah confronting the people, cursing them, beating them up, and pulling out their hair. So from this moment forward, you people better learn to box and shave your heads. I don't know whether Nehemiah's response was proportional or whether it was right or whether it was good. Not everything we find in scripture is prescriptive. Much of it is descriptive. But the heart, do you see it? It's a heart that is broken over sin. It's a heart that loves the glory of God. It's a heart that's compassionate for the people. So gentleness, if it's a truly a spirit, a fruit of the spirit of God and it's truly Christ dwelling in people, then a gentle man can't not get angry. He can't always refuse the fight. His love for God and his, his zeal for the law combined with his compassion, compassion for others is going to drive him to hate the things that God hates. And that hatred is going to demand confrontation from time to time. When the Holy Spirit says it's time. So what in the world are we supposed to do with this then? I just read you all those texts about all the dangers of anger. All the dangers of conflict, all the ways that you can burn your house down. And we all know the way that our own, house, our own car pulls, right? There's some of you that you will do everything you must to avoid conflict, even sin. And even condoning sin. And there's some of us that will just go. Like an angry man that just comes home and kicks his dog. I'm not even mad at you, but you gave me the excuse, so now we go. So, so how do we find this? What, what does true gentleness look like? Well, a guy named William Barclay put it like this. He said, a man who is gentle is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. I think that's true of Christ. Always angry at the right time and the right things in the right way with the right motives. And never angry at the wrong time. A gentle man gets angry. But just like the anger or the wrath of God, it's never reckless or out of control. God's wrath was his settled, holy, righteous, indignant, indignance to all that was contrary to him. So I see it most clearly with regards to my own children. You are not a gentle man if you allow somebody to break into your heart into your house and, and harm your family. You're just a coward. Nor are you a gentle man when you allow your children to endanger their own souls and to dishonor God. That just makes you selfish, selfish and heartless and a negligent coward. That makes you someone who hates God and hates your own children. So true gentleness, if we're going to have a, a gentleness like Christ, if we're going, to, if we're going to, to, to govern and to tamp down and to be slow in our anger and yet know when it's time, when our love for God and our love for others requires of us to stand up, not to wield the sword, but to say the truth and then to allow ourselves to die in defense of that truth if that's what it means. With the willingness to bless those that curse us and to turn the other cheek and all the rest, the only hope we have in any of these things is we've got to know the will of God. How can I get angry about the things that God is angry about if I don't find myself saturated in his word? 
studying the scriptures, but this has got to be more than just knowing the law, just knowing the wrongs and the rights. That's what the Pharisees had. They just had an understanding of what was right and what was wrong. You, you, you understand, everyone's a sinner and God hates sin. That doesn't give us the right to pull everybody's beard out. And so we're coming to the scriptures not just to learn what's right and what's wrong and what is true and what is false. We're coming to the scriptures to hear the heart, to see the heart of our Father, to watch his tenderness and his care and his patience and his long-suffering. We're coming to patience next week. How long was he patient with his people? How much of their sin and their stupidity did he endure? And then we take note of his strong warnings about the damage that our anger, anger can do. And it's from then that we can build some type of, some type of discernment to know when is my job to just be patient in prayer? And when is it time to flip over some tables? It's only when we've seen his word and we have studied what makes him angry, what makes him joyful, what we're meant to cherish and what we're meant to confront. And again, this can't be surely about right and what's wrong. We're never allowed to wink at sin. We're never allowed to condone sin. We're never allowed to say those things that aren't true. But we come to the scriptures and we seek to learn, how do I speak this truth in love? How do I confront my brother with gentleness? And we've got to understand, what is our goal in this? It's to destroy sin, not to destroy our brother. Lastly, we've got to spend as much time in communion with him as possible. Being strengthened in our inner man by the spirit of God. That Christ would dwell more fully in us, reckoning with his never-ending mercy that he expressed towards you and towards me in our own weakness, in our own sin. This is where humility ties in. So we've got to be a people that have a conscience that's informed by the word of God and a heart that's made tender by the presence of God. That's the only way. It's the only way we ever have hope of not just becoming weak, effeminate, cowardly, useless kind of men while at the same time being careful and compassionate and gentle and tender with those who have been entrusted to us. Father, we love you and we thank you. God, it, it, it truly does feel as though we are playing with fire. But fire is good and fire is necessary. Fire within a fireplace brings warmth. Fire under a hot water heater gives us comfort. But fire let loose in a house burns the whole thing down. So help us to be gentle, to be powerful, to be strong, to be brave, to have discernment about when to speak and when to remain silent. Help us to have tender, compassionate, gentle hearts towards one another in all of this. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.